What brought you out to Portland? Intel. Intel the company? Intel or the company. not CIA? Not, not, <laughs> not NSA, Intel. not CIA. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I wasn't working underground. Uh, when I was in Los Angeles, uh, at the end of my music career interest, if you like, hmm. I was running World Domination Records, which was um, part of Capitol Records. That started, I started seeing a writing on the wall with the internet, and um, I'd had um, I'd hired a guy called Jason Fiber. Writing on the wall, kind of the end, the of, end of, the of music the sales? It, yeah, well, just the way it was going to be yeah. delivered and distributed. And so, cut a long story short, um, uh, record label closed, and I was hired by emusic.com in mm. 1998. Yeah. Um, and spent a couple of years um, driving the Los Angeles division, um, getting all of the cool indie bands yeah. uh, and labels to sign up to the program and then we got nailed by Napster and um, I was looking around and realized I've got to stay in the tech world because I've kind of burnt my bridges with <laughs> the music label world you know which is no big deal to me I was quite happy to get out of that yeah and then um, oddly I got this headhunter call and flew my wife and I up here to Portland and um took her off looking at real estate for some reason and um, <laughs> I got to understand that I was being interviewed by Intel. What is, um, let's back up a second, mm -hmm. what does burning your bridges mean? Well, the major label system hated eMusic because we wouldn't yeah. apply DRM to the MP3. Yeah, and the pricing, the pricing tiers were totally different than anything else. It was kind it, of a it, bundled... It, mm, or no, was that it, later? It was in, that was later. Mm. <clears throat> in the beginning, it, it was the iTunes model iTunes is, is almost a perfect model of e-music originally, where mm. it was 99 cents per download, no DRM. Um, and they didn't like that too much, of course. But where iTunes won over us later when they came around again in 2001 or two, Yeah, right around then. Yeah. Um, they were capable and smart enough to understand it's like how are you going to organize all these MP3s mm -hmm. on your laptop? And, so, and, on and your computer, they had the foresight to actually... You know, work with the labels ahead of time, right? They went out there and yeah. did all that. We we were work trying to work with them, but the you know the indies worked with us no problem because they were very happy to receive. We'd gone public. There was lots of money in the bank, so they were very happy to receive really good um, advances on uh, on sales. Um, the big labels just didn't want to talk to us, period, because of the DRM issue. It was still those days of we must protect this file because yeah. everyone's going to share it and so on. And then, of course, Napster comes along. It's like, well, are we still talking? <laughs> well, yeah, Napster comes along and, and in a sense, like, uh, you know, it, 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 it reinforces everything they were terrified of. Yes, right? yes. In a big grand scale, though, I mean, I don't know if you and I have talked about this in the past, but it was where... You know, this idea of what I call the zero barrier to entry model. Mm. It's like the two Sean's at the time weren't sitting down like we were with the legal eagles trying to get licenses and make sure everything yeah. was tight. They didn't even think about that because they were just looking at the opportunity to do a peer-to-peer -peer file sharing there's, system. There's no way that what Napster was could have existed if no. they had gone through the labels, though. And, and, no. and that w the, the defense was kind of... You know, this is the we're offering at the platform. We can't really help what people do with it. Yeah, that's pretty lame, really. I mean, yeah. but but at the same time, I I, I believe the labels le left an awful lot of money on the table when they refused to negotiate mm. with Napster. There could have been a system that yeah. would have solved the label issue. It wouldn't have had to be you know all these free MP3s flying around. It wouldn't have had to be heavy heavy DRM either. 
but they just decided to sue and, and then move on, and it just got worse and worse. Well, as somebody who spent a good chunk of his life, you know, as a musician, mm-hmm. for you know, your, your, I assume your primary income. You know, where do you, where do you fall on all of this? Seriously, um, I have always believed that to have more music out there in front of fans yeah. will sell more records, and I I stand by that still today. Um, you know, even you and I talking uh, about this today, uh, and when you post this online, you know, there are going to be people just checking it out. Like, what is this Gang of Four thing mm-hmm. that they're talking about? And, and I see it all the time. And then, you know, you can see from royalty statements, uh, you can tell in the months you've done something that there's these little peaks. And, you yeah. know, it's fine. It's long term as well. It's very long tail in my mind. Well, especially we Gang of Four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we've really been around have since had second, third, fourth lights. We, yeah, I mean, Rick Moody says it all the time. Uh, he and I, did you see that interview we just did? Uh, uh, I'll send you a link yeah. to it. Um, it's part two of one we did a couple of years ago where he just sends out, we do it in email for like weeks on end, and then this one came out on Rumpus. The uh, first one came out on another online ma- magazine. And we just love riffing to and fro but he keeps going on about my god Dave you, you know you're not supposed to have a second act and you've yeah. had a third and a fourth now yeah. I'm talking personally here yeah. but I I believe and I don't want to well I, I think I can speak on behalf of the band the other three are less interested in in where it was all going it was more like mm, okay it's fine what does that mean where it was all going well I, I want to help have our music made available to as yeah. many people as possible well, I mean, if and I don't still care if I, I if yeah. my royalties decline. Let's be very clear: mm. it, you can't make a lot of money selling music, yeah. ever. Never mind yeah. today. Yeah. You know, there's this idea that there was some period somewhere in the very short history of rock and roll, by the way, where even Mick Jagger and Brian Eno and others just say. Man, I don't know how on earth we got so rich in that, <laughs> in that very weird period yeah. in the late 60s into the sort yeah. of mid-70s. The, um, the, the kind of early arena period. Yeah, before, yeah. yeah, and it wasn't necessarily from selling records, although there was a, a bell curve of selling records, and yeah. then it just became touring big stadiums. And So there's this idea, I think, that musicians get lost in today of the Internet's destroying yeah. my career. It's like, no, it's the best possible platform to go out there and get yeah. in front of more people with which it's kind of funny though because not to be like too pop culture critic to to music critic but you know isn't at least in retrospect there's this whole idea that that punk was kind of a reaction to the bloated stadium mm-hmm. rock of the time right right it so. was yeah it it was a reaction for sure to i don't want to say corporate rock because that's such a lame title for something and um, it was just that if you were a mega band driving all the sales you were not that invested in in testing the waters in something hmm. really out there that, that you know so if you followed bands they did great records yeah. and it was about making great records but they weren't necessarily pushing any boundaries in rock right? mm. like like today radiohead is a perfect example yeah. of we made it we're big 
And we're going to go on this massive curve over here for a minute and see if you like it. There's, I mean, there, there, certainly there are exceptions to that. I mean, I like to I think, think of, like, Zeppelin as doing something well, completely I, I, different. I, weirdly, record. I knew you were going to say that <laughs> Zeppelin. And I, I, I could feel Pleasant's that coming. a weird record, Dave. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. I think Led Zeppelin made some amazing records. Yeah. I mean, especially physical graffiti. Yeah. That, I, that yeah. was one of the pinnacles of their career. It was a weird double record, too. A weird double album. Yeah. But I really liked it. Um, but were they ever going to drop the, you know, four on the floor, big bond sure. beats and, and say for a minute, John, you don't need to play on this record. Jimmy's got this new uh, drum machine and he's going to mess around and we're going to put out a really strange Zeppelin. Oh, well, well, again, again, you know, <laughs> Zeppelin being kind of an atypical example, but they, they did a kind of a, a synthy record too, or a they keyboardy did. record. So they yeah. did, you know, And it was really bad. It had its moments, <laughs> but that was more. I think that was more something with car accidents and heroin yeah, and overdoses. Yeah. Well, I, I, I actually funny you should say this. Um, um, a woman called Kate Opolis, that's her name on Tumblr. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Posted up. Um, she lives here in Portland. Okay, we? we've never actually met, but we're electronic friends. It's not but that big of a city, you guys. No, I know, but yeah, it's got to be a Tumblr party. I'm sure we've passed each other in the dark or something. Yeah, but um, um. Um, she posted up the Led Zeppelin Starship photos mm-hmm. that surfaced recently. Have you yeah. seen those? Of their flying, like they, you know, they own their own jet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really funny. There's yeah. a picture of, of the band um, sitting in a front room. Like you can tell it's a jet because it's got the curved yeah, yeah, windows yeah. there, and there's a fireplace with logs <laughs> in it. <laughs> like obviously you can't light it. You yeah. Know? But it was just like the idea of having these sofas and a, and a rug and yeah. It's like, this is so quaint. It's yeah like for you rock stars. I guess it's just like what do we what do we do at this point? Like we have to keep pushing it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got to keep spending. Let, let me let me let me actually since we're why since, are we talking? Why are we talking? Yeah. We're doing an interview. No, <laughs> <laughs> I just I was trying to think the subject matter. Oh no no that's the whole that's the whole point of this, Dave. Um, and and I, but on that subject, I mean, since we've gone down that road, I, I keep like. Every once in a while, I'll see the uh, the clip of the clash at Shea Stadium mm. with um, with Mick Jones wearing that like big weird hat. Mm-hmm. What, what what was going through everybody's mind at that point when when those bands were <laughs> doing those shows? A lot, yeah. Uh, but uh, let me try and sum that up pretty briefly. I remember um, the New Musical Express because you know the the beauty of the British rock press mm-hmm. was always they'll build you up and champion you, and you're the greatest thing yeah. since sliced bread. And the minute you step a foot over the wrong line, mm-hmm. you just get hammered. And it was like, all oh, right, here's the Clash doing Shea Stadium, and then there was their album, Give Them Enough Rope. Yep. And then it would say subtitle to hang themselves (laughs) you know it's like what has happened here but I think what you were seeing there with the clash um, uh, and perhaps a lot of the punk rock bands in a sense um, were looking for success you know you can start out saying I'm fighting Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and all that bloated rock but at the end of the day it becomes very addictive yeah you know you're touring in buses you're playing to big crowds and it's just like man and then Unwittingly, I believe, it turns into. Um, um, well, how can I phrase this properly? Um, well, like that addiction, but it becomes something that you're really inured to. You know, it's like I like this well, lifestyle. I, and I, now, how can I go backwards yeah. though? To uh, okay, let, let me switch gears. Um, I was fascinated. I don't know if you saw that David Bowie documentary. 
that illegally hit the hit, hit the web. I don't know how I missed that. Actually, it's on, well, it's a BBC thing, and because of copyright um, issues, it'll come out eventually. But it's like a royalty it, thing where it's there's, there's multiple yeah. players in it that need their royalties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it, it hit uh, BitTorrent and. and it was everywhere and mm. I watched it you had like one evening to watch it and I remember sitting down there with my wife um, it was like an hour and a half of unseen footage and unseen interviews and it was just amazing that there was a guy who you have to say to yourself after watching documentary who the hell is David Bowie mm. his real name is David Jones yeah and it's kind of like is this David Jones that you see walking yeah. the streets of Manhattan because he plays, he, he plays his character for every single yeah. record and period in his career that you realize, man, the low period, you know, when it was... Um, the Berlin low, era. The Berlin yeah. era. It's fantastic. It was just him saying, hmm, there's a punk thing going on. <laughs> I'm going to go and do something simple. And Eno comes in the studio and has everybody switch instruments that they're not used to playing, hmm. things like that. There's a great one with the drummer. I forget his name, a really great black drummer who'd played with, with all the greats. And he was just sitting there going, nope, no, wait, I play the drums. <laughs> 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 and it was a really yeah. classic, honest moment. Yeah. You know? yeah. um, but, but Bowie managed to be that chameleon that could move through popular culture and its needs in music, if you will. And, like and be happening. respected by totally. pretty much all sides. I mean, totally. that's, the hard, that's the rub right there. Mm-hmm. That's the hardest part of all right. of it. Well, and so, okay. Gang of Four. Yeah. Our first two albums and uh, a couple of EPs and B-sides were just stellar. And I'd say I so, can yeah. say that. No, I can <laughs> say that because I go back and listen and yeah. I remind myself of like, why do people get so excited about what we did? Because I'm getting older and you lose touch with yeah. you know, uh, music culture particularly. I'm not wild about it right now. Um, but that was a great moment in time. But... I sense after I left for sure there was this 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 urge in the band to like we how do we break big? Well, you know what's funny? <laughs> it's just sort of like a little. I don't even know. It's not even an anecdote, but um, uh, I think it was you know maybe freshman year in college when somebody you know, people were talking about Gaga Four again mm-hmm. around me. Um, I grew up uh, in a place where I didn't <laughs> get a lot of access to good music. Right. It wasn't even that that deserted or anything, but you know, it was. I, I didn't, you know, the Pixies, for example, yeah. I didn't really catch on to until college. But right. um, yeah, so somebody told me about Gang of Four, and I I went out and was going through looking for vinyl, mm-hmm. and I think It's Hard was the first <laughs> record. Well, I that's up. unfortunate. That's a tough. I mean, that's a tough way to get into that. And it's and it's so it's strange well, to go back and realize that this is the same. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I would I would argue right there that yeah. if you came across that first, that is a totally different band. Yeah, it's not Abs- absolutely that is not going for. And I think John and Andy for starters, I think there were only three people <laughs> in the band at the time. No, I think even Hugo was um, yeah. edged out. It was, yeah. all, it was all drum machine and just Andy and John. But anyway, I, I don't want to. Uh, I've never made a point of criticizing the work post my time. Sure. Um, but the other stuff speaks for itself. Yeah, but th- I mean the th- the thing I I think I, I, I was thinking about when we were talking about, about the Clash, and this is something that you tend to really lose in in retrospect because you know once you've got a distance of ten, twenty, thirty years, it's easy to go back and kind of dissect everything, put it in a microscope. But you forget, like you know, for for example, how long were the Beatles together? I mean, oh ultimately, my God. right? 
Not long. Not long. Four years. So and then like the you know yeah, the, 1917 yeah. they were coming apart at the seams right yeah so yeah 65, exactly 65 they'd broken out yeah so yeah what 64 essentially mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. to really 69 early 70 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and you know the class are another example of like it's hard to remember how quick all of that can happen I mean yeah. it's it's probably pretty easy to lose track of these things and to kind of you know, have things get out of control a little bit when we're talking about this happening in the space of 12 or 24 months. Right. Yeah, my time at Gang of Four was really short. Um, 78 to yeah. 81. Two records, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because that doesn't count the fact that we weren't even signed till 79 and put out entertainment, and then we hit the road, the yeah. of touring, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, actually. I mean, um, what do you mean? Burning out, yeah, quickly. I think it's not a bad thing when you leave behind a couple of great records. Sure, but and, but and you weren't out. You weren't out. I mean, <coughs> you know, you trick back, and you were still, yeah, back, yeah. I mean, you weren't out of playing music for. It no. Took a while for that to happen. To get out of music, yeah, to mm. have totally, to have completely burnt out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was just um, um, by the time I'd uh, moved to LA, and um, was realizing I'd, I'd done pretty much what I felt I could achieve uh, with that lifestyle. I wanted to switch gears a bit, do something else. You, you've I mean, got to miss it a little bit, right? No, actually. No. Uh, it's really funny how people ask that question as if there's... Uh, well, well, I, I ask well, it, it like... It begs a question yeah. in the sense, it's like, why would I miss it? And, and it, I, I think your question there is based perhaps on a many other people's well, sort of idea of what it's like. My, my question is based on if I stopped writing, mm. I think oh. it would be hard for me. Right. Yeah. So I stopped making music, but I switched to writing. Okay. So all my... And that I mean, fills a similar need? Oh, my God, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was looking the other day. I mean, I've, I've been writing online since 2003, and I'm trying to capture it all back into one place. It's mm. just massive amounts of... of Pretty good stuff that, you know, yeah. when I go back to it, I go, oh, my God, yeah, I predicted that. And no yeah. one cares. But yeah. I actually wrote about that before it happened three years later. Um, I, I think and about these things that. need gathering. Yeah. I keep promising myself I'll, I'll get a book of essays together. I mean, I, I, yeah, everyone's all think about the fact that I'm sure that, you know, over the past... Ten years, I've written more words than James Joyce did in yeah, his life. Right? Exactly. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But it's just you kind of... You're putting them on like a, one of those little paper boats on mm-hmm. a lake, and yeah. they're just kind of going out yeah. in the distance, or on an yeah. ocean. Yeah, Somebody exactly. over in Australia yeah. picks it up. Yeah, I. Um, although I feel pretty blessed that um, you know my public persona is higher, you know, because of the bands, um, and then building my way up through this whole world of um, um, digital strategy thinking and ideas around what people are doing online. That's been my focus. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not so much about the technologies; it's how people use those technologies. Um, that's part of my role here at North. Is something I try and map out. Uh, say, sorry, in, in in a meeting might be well. You know, I'm thinking through how your users will use this thing. I'm not really working for you, the client, directly. I've got to consider. Yeah, who's going to do something with it and whether it's worthwhile. And do they like hearing that? Um. I think nah, it's a really tough question because I don't have a correct answer for it. But um, maybe would be a neutral, right? <laughs> maybe. Um, I mean, they keep coming back, so 
Right, but then uh, I'm not the only one uh, working with the clients here. So, it, you know, it's like, uh, it's just my portion of it would be, okay, you want something in digital. Um, the, the big question I, I would ask is, what problem does that solve? Yeah. Like, what is the problem with your brand today um, that digital thing, whether it's an app or a mobile site or even a website, what what's it going to solve? Because if there's a really good answer to that, you can really do something amazing. Because it's because I'm sure that most of these, at least the bigger companies out there, think that they can just set up a Twitter account, put an intern on it, and that will... Well, those days are, are behind us, yeah. uh, fortunately, yeah. But it's like, you know, Alison here, um, she's um, works with Jessica Williams. Uh, the three of us are, you know, we're batting down in a corner just try, trying to work this through by handling all that for clients. And we don't call it... Um, it's not our social media team so much. It's, it's, it, we call it the social lab, where we're trying to do things slightly differently um, and looking at different platforms. Like we may use Pinterest for one client and um, you know Instagram for another. Are you looking at things differently to, to create a template for the future, or is the idea to just have something completely different every time? You don't really want to repeat yourself, ultimately. We don't, and, and, and that's another great question. It's like that that's a challenge for me under the digital strategy portion to think through like how can we reinvent that wheel whereas it used to be don't in reinvent the wheel mm. now in in a in a fast moving society um uh, with communication flying around to and fro everywhere i mean bouncing literally you can't control it so yeah what do we do so um one thing that we have gotten uh, in the last 18 months out of the slab experiment um has been trying different platforms for different uh, clients, not just one size fits all. This is interesting, and, and I mean, this is something that I've been thinking about lately, and it certainly makes sense for doing what you do to be so focused on the medium itself. But mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wondering, like, you know, for somebody who's primarily considers himself a writer, mm -hmm. does focusing on the medium, does that can that take away from the writing? Um, you know, okay, so... The, it's a two hats equation. Uh, I'm really good at switching off uh, and focusing on what needs to be focused mm -hmm. on. Um, and writing, I'm so passionate about that. And if I may say so, occasionally I'm really good at it. Not every time. Um, but I go back and read some of the things I've written um, uh, I think uh, one of my favorite posts was early this year about Tarkovsky's movie Stalker, mm -hmm. and um, uh, that came out great. And you, you know, you can tell, of course, by the traffic. It's like, oh, that came out great. Mm -hmm. And then there's some more mundane stuff which embarrasses me slightly, but at the same time, you're going through these phases where what's happening in the world that's going to inform what you want yeah. to talk about. At the same time, over here is this sort of this white light movement that's rushing along called the internet and social mm -hmm. and apps, you know. So you've got to get in your mind at some point that, all right, we've got to put the writing aside for a minute and, and now jump in this current and see what's going on. But at, at many points, um, you know, especially since I've been writing for North for the last three years, um, I see these great connections between the two that I hope open people's minds up to how it can be, not how it is or mm -hmm. should be. Just how how could it be? Uh, I'm trying to say, everyone slow down, look backwards, go to anthropology, go to history. 
go go find that um, in World War One, with the invention of the telegram, um, there was the first form of, of uh, SMS. You know, or even go back ten years. <laughs> well, yeah, that's yeah, we are right absolutely, now, right? absolutely. We're so far removed. <clears throat> from but that. there's nothing. Okay, my, my argument is there's nothing new in technology. Sure, it's just built on the foundations of, of previous um, technological achievements, yeah. and they've always been disruptive you know um but but that's but that's i mean you know we're we're the, the one difference i would say is that we're at a point right now where something comes along that we would consider disruptive every six months or so and mm-hmm. that's what makes it so hard to focus on content versus delivery yeah but uh the so fact that we're even calling it content to me sometimes can be a little troubling right? yeah yeah but also uh, what does disruption mean this mm. is this is the thing, and people might feel it's disruptive, yeah. but I think it's because they haven't got used to this platform yet. It's only two decades old. The internet, you know, the public-facing internet, yeah. we call the web. Sure. So that was a disruption for culture, society, yeah. and business, and it's been two decades. So that's not long enough to get over the immediate convulse. Sure, but it, but certain certainly something comes along that's enough to at least make us shift our focus in in in, in a way that I think didn't used to happen nearly as what, often. What's the last one for you that shifted that focus? I th- you know, I think the the last one that I, probably Twitter would be the last mm-hmm. one that really. Um, change things for yeah, me now, personally i'm just trying it, it, but now we get into demographics because yeah. like with my um i still have a teenager and two what do you call them when they're not teenagers 20 some things yeah they're, so snapchat i mean they're still they're still teenagers let's be honest right. absolutely <laughs> yeah i try to be um but snapchat is the disruptive sure. thing for them uh using instagram uh comments to like i am yeah. was disruptive for them um and they're, yeah, you know, they're, they're off Facebook at this point. Right, but they don't see it as disruption. They just yeah. see it as a new cool tool. Sure. Um, it, it perhaps is all us guys who are trying to fathom out uh, yeah. business and culture and society. Yeah, who are trying to kind of go along and do our mm. jobs in a sense, right? right. I, I just did one of these with, uh, with Douglas Rushkoff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you f- are familiar with his I am familiar book. with Douglas, yeah. No, oh, not his okay. new book. Yeah. I bought it, but I haven't yeah, read yeah. it. I'm a serial book buyer, and then they stack up, and then I well, start peeling through them. Yeah, right? yeah, and, and, and that actually speaks to, I think, you know, the, the question that I wanted to get around to, which is um, uh, the first chapter of the book is about the death of the narrative. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the minute I read that, I wanted to sit down with Douglas and ask him, why have you written a book? You know, if mm-hmm. this book is sort of about the deconstruction of, of the book as we know it. Why would you right. sit down and write a book? Right. And I'm wondering if to you there's value in that. If, if to you there's value in you know people sitting down and kind of taking themselves out of the immediate conversation. Mm. If they can, I mean, if they succeed, perhaps that's valuable. Um, so now, I mean, I haven't read the book, so I have yeah. to be careful what I say. Oh, I think it. I mean, it's a great, it's right. a great book, right? And it was worth his time, and it's worth the, you know, right, hour it takes you to read it. Yeah, it just sounds like what you're saying is that um, you know he, he it's like a, a catch twenty two almost. Yeah, I, he had an interesting answer, you know, because uh, um, basically what the question was is you know he I think he was talking about a story he had just written for cnn.com or something similar and about how many people ultimately read that and i mean that so that's that 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 was what i asked him he has no illusions about any of these things Mm. you know he didn't take offense to the question but if you know immediately that um you can get the same point across or at least get your thesis across in 300 words Mm -hmm. 
why wouldn't you just do that? Right. I think that's a very complicated scenario all round. Um, I mean, this speaks a bit to my uh, teaching at the University of Oregon mm-hmm. here. Um, I, I see with students, they sometimes... It's not that they're lazy. They they do want to find a quicker way yeah. to doing things, and <clears throat> it's not laziness as much as attention span. And that's not. But yeah. It, you know. Well, okay. But what I'm saying is, um, I would love nothing more than my students to have a decent library of books. Yeah. Uh, because everything that they're paying to go to school for has been written, <laughs> and uh, I'm not saying they shouldn't go to school because. Uh, I'm, what I am saying is a great education can build upon your reading skills, like what you've read if you're focused in high school. And I know it, it's just like I'm talking a little bit European now, right? You know, we had to read books. We learned Latin. Yeah. We learned German. And by the time you hit college, you, you had a decent education. And then you had four more years of working with professors that really blew your mind, yeah. you know? And then you can opt out afterwards as well, not work, and then go travel. Um, what we're seeing in technology, um, like with the rise of the MOOCs, the massive online, what is it, um, courses? Yeah. Uh, massive open online courses. This is all very well and good if you don't mind interacting with machines. Sure. You know, like you're not going to be able to reach a professor to say, how did I do on my essay and what, what could you say help me out? And, and what I'm getting at here, this trickle-down effect into it's all quicker, faster, easier. Mm. I think, you know, Rushkoff is probably correct to write this book, like make people read it, <laughs> even though you're going to maybe have to jump through some hoops to say, well, w- the premise here su- suggests that this book shouldn't even exist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I like that kind of thing as well. That makes right there what, what I just said and you'd already alluded to it, is it makes us think about it. Mm-hmm. And and it also reminds me that the greatest thing you can do is write a book-length book. Look, look, and I don't necessarily mean novels, but they come yeah. in too. But, I mean, if you want to be expressing opinions, yeah. get them out there, you know. It's like right now I found it's not difficult to submit the New York Times op-ed page. Mm. I, I just need to find the right topic mm-hmm. and the right Got 750 the year, uh, words because yeah. there's a lot of competition because it's yeah. open you just send them in well well so 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 let me let me ask you this then you know obviously attention attention spans getting short is not a new phenomenon it's been it's been a pretty you know a really gradual slide that, that's getting faster and you know the, the the common thought is that maybe books in, in the way that we know them aren't going to be around in a while and i'm wondering if like you know because as you said Again, the internet is a new phenomenon. So, are, are, is just is this growing pains? Hmm. Are, are are people gonna? Is is it gonna go back up a little bit? Well, I think what we're, what we're seeing is um, it's interesting when you mentioned disruption earlier. Like the the disruptive effect of a Kindle or an iPad is interesting to me. Yeah, because it makes everybody initially want to be seen to be ahead of the game. I have a Kindle. I have an iPad, and I go well. I've got thousands of books at home yeah right um i am reading more now more than ever by right. the way because i'm well, traveling and i'm taking my kindle with me yes that's great so you're getting more access to more books than mm-hmm. ever before and and one thing that these devices bring is is the convenience of carrying lit, you know yeah literally A all library. these books yeah. your library but it would seem that the 
the bloom has kind of come off the, the idea of those things. Like, you know, the nooks failed. Um, Amazon will never say how many Kindles have been sold. But the I, book I think they're doing fine. I think Amazon's I'm, doing fine. I'm sure they're doing fine. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they do pretty good at everything else. <laughs> um, but the book publishers are really excited that book sales are actually up. Like yeah. physical book sales are actually up. Mm. Um, and let me put it this way. Um, when people come to my house, because the first thing you'll see in the front room is there's a wall of books. You know, it's a big uh, mid-century home. So one end of the yeah. house is all books. Then the other corner is more books, and then you go downstairs, and there's more books. Mm-hmm. Right? And they remark about how great that is. Like it, it gives people a sense of who you are, right? Now nobody goes yeah. to in the corner. I've got this very cool blue dot um, um, computer desk, mm-hmm. metal. I really love it. And um, on there sits yeah. my laptop. Open up my iTunes nobody and see what my music like, collection is. going yeah. through everything. No, yeah. and then they find the vinyl records downstairs yeah. in the man cave. And it's just like, oh, wow. And, and there's, something, there's something about that where I'm t- saying about look backwards a bit of, yeah. of like what is it that we're benefiting from. Now, let me squeeze these two ideas together, which might be <laughs> stupid or might come across Okay. Uh, being a homeowner, uh, uh, there's an article in the New York Times that popped up yesterday about the unhappiness of owning a home. So in America, and I think I don't want to be unfair on Americans, but it is that thing here that owning your own home is some kind of freedom. Mm. Whereas in the rest of the world, just renting, 70% of most countries in yeah. Europe just rent. Like, but you rent forever, you know. You you do yeah. a deal with the landlord. And, and, but uh, that also gets to another idea, which is you know, um, Americans and the aversion to living with family. You know what I mean? I mean right, right. In other countries, we live together you live with your yeah. your parents or grandparents. Right. And I'm not. trying, as an Englishman, I'm trying to keep that going in my house, yeah. where my kids one day take it over. Now that wasn't my point, though. It was this idea of this unhappiness of owning a home because what people. You know, now I only thought about it the other day. Whenever you fill anything out, it's, it'll say homeowner renter. Yeah. And you could check the box homeowner, which I technically am, but I could also say deeply in debt, <laughs> right? Because mm-hmm. I have a mortgage to pay. Mortgage owner. So I don't own that thing. Yeah. yeah it should say mortgage <laughs> owner. Yeah. Because that's the truth, right? Yeah. But I like conflating things like that. You know, it's just like, what exactly do we want in our lives? If. Owning a house, for me, meant I couldn't buy books. I would sell a house and go rent hmm. to buy more books. Yeah. Um, and so what I'm saying, in a sense, it's something I wrote about early this year uh, on the North blog about sort of that mindfulness, the idea in, in sort of yoga and other more spiritual activities, is just slow down for a minute hmm. and actually ask yourself, do you love this house and everything in it? Or do you love the idea of the house? Right. Yeah. So, thankfully, I can actually say I love my house. We, we bought it for a reason, which was to raise our kids in a big home with a huge yard mm-hmm. in the hills here. So, again, uh, I, I'm not just your average person, you know, I mean, I've got... You're, you're Crosby, Stills, and Nash song. Yeah, you know, exactly, <laughs> yeah, I've got things that are a little different, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, this is our family home, mm-hmm. and I am, uh, so I can contradict the article I read, 
um, because it's 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 trying to generalise that everyone sure. who has a mortgage is probably unhappy. It's like, yeah. no, not necessarily, but you can be happy renting too. It's the same, you know. It's the same with cars. It's the same with anything. Oh else my god! Don't get me started on cars. Well, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't want to go too far down that road, but just this idea <laughs> of, of you're you're buying a lot it's more another, than the car, right? It's another podcast. Yeah, you're you're you're, you're buying everything. The car kind of represents something. You are, you are, and and I'm very. I don't know. I'm fortunate to have an American wife who understands my British frugality. <laughs> and so, you know, we run two hybrids. Yeah. And I don't care what anyone thinks of me. It's like I just don't have to stop at the gas pump and I can buy yeah. more books. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, 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 you know, I, and this is, this is one of those things where, you know, I'll talk to a friend who, like a car person. I, I know people are car people. And to me, it's, it, Cars are. I, I don't. I live in New York. Mm-hmm. I'm lucky in that you respect. Yeah, I lived in London. I, yeah, I, I, I had a really beautiful Carmen Gear. Yeah, a restored one, but well, it was in the yeah. garage more than anything. I mean, ultimately, it's hard for me to think of a car as anything but a, a, a vehicle for getting yeah. from point A to point B. That's what a vehicle should be. Yeah. Um, I don't. You know, we don't need to quite go to the East German. Um, what were those little cars? Oh, the there? little box. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were awesome. Yeah. <laughs> the ugliest thing yeah. ever put on four wheels. Yeah. But no, we don't need to go that far. But uh, I do find it a bit dramatic that that um, you know I see people in Range Rovers wandering around town here, and it's just like, really, guys? Wow, that's that's a whole house. Yeah, but you can afford it. So we now know you can consume at will. Yeah, because you're rich people. Let, let me ask you this real quick to to wrap this up and move on to our next interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the the transition to digital music mm. as as somebody who loves vinyl records Mm -hmm. as somebody who's made a lot of music but also as somebody who has been very in touch with the internet and and you know has worked for e-music i mean was that ever a hard transition to to make to now go primarily digital not for me um um i suppose what you're what you're asking and and how i might answer this would be that i'm an, an observer of how humans use technology and I like what I see. That doesn't mean that I have to uh, follow my own work, as it were. Like, oh, well, if everyone else is going digital and I'm talking about it, writing about mm-hmm. it, as in, you know, the social construct today is very clear. People want access to music wherever they are yeah. as cheaply as possible. They do not want to own it. And we're seeing it. Our record, uh, even digital music sales are down 3% this last quarter. Um, so, I can quite happily be a vinyl lover, and um, yeah. and also I can you know I have my iPhone with all my playlists in it. And I'm a, I'm, uh, a you know. I'm a blogger for a living. I just went to Floating World and spent fifty dollars on zines and comics. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Yes, you will. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I, did. <laughs> you just did. That's why exactly. I was sweaty. I just made the log over here. And I can uh, for sure uh, go out and buy lots of vinyl records this afternoon. Yeah. Everyday music in and on Burnside there. Yep. Uh, I love doing that. It doesn't mean that I don't understand the social construct. And it doesn't mean because I understand the social construct, I'm just going to go down that path. You know, it's, it's, it's okay for me to access my music however I want to mu- uh, access it. And we have to start worrying about the payments. In fact, I'm, <coughs> I'm more concerned that musicians think Spotify and Pandora and all this is some kind of savior of the music industry mm. while they get peanuts in return. Yeah. It's like, really, guys, uh, I would kind of, if I had a band going today still, I would start 
having a few more interviews with major press saying, mm. I'm not sure this is a good idea. Yeah. Because it'll, it, it, it sort of devalues um, yeah. mu- the, the price of music. And it's getting worse. And uh, I'm kind of slightly getting tired of talking at conferences about it. It doesn't matter. When you've got like, and this is what came up in the Rick Moody interview as well, is like, look, if you look around anecdotally in Portland and you talk to musicians, professional musicians in Portland, they all use Spotify. It's part of culture. Yeah. It's, like, it's that when I'm not on the clock as a musician, yeah. I'm listening to Spotify. You can't ar- I mean, you can't argue with that, ultimately. I mean, you, you, uh, you know, no matter how much you, you love the vinyl records, no matter how big your collection is, you can't argue with walking down the street and being able to access one of eight million tracks. Right. And so, I, I, you know, to wrap this up a bit, I suppose, is what I want to see, let's, let's raise this to a higher level in a sense, is I want to see uh, open broadband wireless access to everyone in America and it should be a requisite for every country and then what you do with that wireless access is nothing to do with me as a musician if you want to listen to Spotify all day that's great but I'd rather have that thought in my head of at least you've got internet access which brings you so much open source information that you can make your own mind up about the correlation there that's problematic is is are people educated enough to make up their own mind about things? Mm. But you but you want uh, you want really high speed internet to be like water out of a faucet yeah, where you I can mean, just you know you don't think on. about it. Yeah, we yeah. were talking about hotels earlier. So you check into a hotel and and you've got your bill and then it's like oh and it's twenty five dollars a day for internet access. Yeah. So well, can we swap that out for the lights? <laughs> I won't pay for internet access. Just yeah. switch my lights up. Yeah. <laughs> I'll light candles. <laughs> All right, that was a fun one. Uh, Dave Allen, the uh, original bass player of Gang of Four, of course, on all their classic albums. Uh, he was uh, also in, in uh, Shriekback, King Swamp. Um, now, now he's doing some uh, some really interesting stuff on the, the, the social side of things. So uh, thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. Really, uh, really fascinating conversation about where he's at right now. Um, thank you to listening. Thanks to Brian, as always, for, uh, for putting this thing together. Uh, thanks to Mark and everybody else at Boing Boing for hosting this thing and thank you for listening to this thing good job team uh if you liked what you heard you can send us an email it's riylcast at gmail.com follow us on tumblr uh, also riylcast.tumblr.com uh, we're on itunes you probably know that because you're listening to this right now uh if you could make your way over there and uh give us a rating that'd be uh, that would be fantastic uh, got a whole bunch of awesome shows lined up for you guys. Uh, one more out of that Portland trip. We spoke to see Sir Mark Rover. Um, oh man, who else is coming up? We got an interview with Kim Deitch, uh, Lisa Hanawal, a lot of a lot of cartoonists on the roster. Uh, Reggie Watts took the time. We got an interview with Reggie Watts coming up. Um, Seth Lind of uh, of This American Life. A uh, whole bunch of fantastic stuff coming your way too. So uh, stick around, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of R I Y L. 